Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards. If you're new to us, this is a podcast that's all about the people behind the wines you love, where they started, how they got into wine, their ups and downs, challenges and successes. It's a crazy business. We cover all of it. Today, we have a guest who grew up in a family connected to Hollywood and Broadway. Eventually, he landed here in Napa Valley and started working at Behringer in the late 70s and eventually started his own wine label that's been a big success. His story is like none other, so let's get started. Hey, everybody, Doug Schaefer, back with you, another episode of The Taste. Uh, happy today. I've got a longtime friend. His kids and my kids grew up together with parent-teacher parent meetings, soccer games. The kids are grown and gone, so we don't see each other at the soccer games. We used to see each other traveling, but we're not traveling. So at least we're on the phone. We've got Tor Kenwood from Tor Wines. Tor, good to talk to you, buddy. How you doing? Doug, it is good to talk to you, neighbor. Uh, we live about a quarter of a mile, if that, from each other. And where have you been? <laughs> Sheltering in place. <laughs> yes, I know. Laying low. Same here. Crazy. So anyway, man, I was thinking about you last night, and I was trying to think, when did I first Uh-oh. meet Tor? And I don't, I remember hearing about you before I met you, and it was here at the winery, and somebody who worked here for a long time was doing a lot of our stuff in the office, and... PR and marketing. She said, uh, "Oh, this you're Tor Kenward." Tor, I said, "Who's that?" She goes, "It's this guy from Behringer. He just loves Hillside. He's calling about Hillside all the time." So I, I remember <laughs> hearing about this <laughs> mysterious guy who worked at Behringer and he loved our wine and was super complimentary whenever we heard from him. So that was my first memory of you. But uh, before we go to Behringer, let's start with you. Where'd you Where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? Talk Talk to me. Family, home life. What's Tell me the story. Oh, yeah. Maybe maybe the home life's the easier way to start for, uh, on that equation. Um, I, I, I had two very bohemian parents. Dad was a writer. Mom was a, a painter, but uh, we found out later a very famous Broadway, off-Broadway actress, too. So um, they had a lot of friends who played musical instruments, wrote, painted, and that was the uh, circus that was the home life for quite some time. Mostly Southern Cal. Dad was, uh, um, had a very famous play, which was his claim to fame, that hmm. went uh, from South Cal to Broadway and then was made into a motion picture. Um, so they gravitated toward uh, South Cal and lived there. That's where most of my childhood was. And... and uh, then a little bit in Taos, New Mexico, which was part of that bohemian community thing. So I had a, I had a fascinating childhood. Sometimes we never knew where the food was coming from, uh, <laughs> but uh, we, always had, we were always highly entertained. And, uh, you know, I look back and I feel very fortunate to have that kind of crazy uh, childhood period in my life. How cool! So he was a he was a a, a playwright or a screenwriter or both. Yeah, he <clears throat> he well he he started in Hollywood uh, as a director, a young director with the uh, 
uh, one of the major studios, and somebody dared him to write a play, uh, <laughs> is the story that he tells anyway. So he wrote this play, and it was uh, very successful at the Pasadena Playhouse, and uh, then it got these write-ups in Life Magazine and Time. Then it went to Broadway, and they made it into a motion picture. It was called Cry Havoc. Okay. And and it still pops up, you know, uh, on late night television. It's, it, you can still stream it. I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out because Lord knows you, I've got some time at home right yeah, now. Yeah, no kidding. I'm always looking for a new film too. Now, here's the interesting thing about the uh, about the story. It it is a hundred percent all women cast. Okay. Wow. Uh, and and they're they're the nurses during uh, in the Philippines during the Bataan March. And it's uh, got a little mystery in it, and uh, it, it, it holds up. Strangely, it holds up. Okay, well, I'm checking it out. Because that, that was 1943, if I'm right. Yeah, right? Wow. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. But uh, you mentioned living in Taos. So you, were, you lived in Taos for a while as a kid? Yeah, I did. Back when you know Taos was not so uh, cool and and popular, it was really an artist community back then. Yeah, I, w- I was going to ask you about that because it's become quite the, the trendy place, I think. But uh, well, I don't have much of a memory. What was interesting is that Dad taught school, uh, and there were you had the the Indian community there, right? Uh, and then you had just a whole mix of culture and people. Uh, there were, I, he told me there were four different or f- three or four different grades in one room. And he taught all of them in that one room, different uh, grade levels. Uh, a huge number being the Indian uh, community, the Taos Pueblo Indians. And somebody would pick me up uh, in the morning, take me to the Pueblo Indian community. And that was my daycare for a couple years. Pretty cool, and then that was yeah, it's different. And then, uh, but high school that was probably back in where was high school and all that that part. South Cal mostly. Okay. Uh, Taos was pre high school, and uh, yeah, South Cal, and it's moved to Santa Barbara. We lost a house. Uh, this is a little deja vu, maybe uh, mm. to a fire. Well, actually, it was a flood after a fire in South Cal. It was our primary residence there. So dad and mom moved to Santa Barbara, and I went to high school in Santa Barbara. And talk to me about, I'm just curious about uh, the home life. Was there wine in the house? You know, (laughs) mom liked wine. Uh, Dad, not really. He was a very good cook, which was meaningful. But I did not grow up with wine being you know, part of the culture of our home at all. How about you? I was curious. Yeah, no, same thing here. It was uh, suburban Chicago. It was bourbon and beer, um, yep. cocktails, you know, vodka tonics and martinis yeah. and brandy Alexanders after dinner. At least that's what yep. I saw. And I'd sneak a sip here and there. I think wine would be Lancers or Matus if it ever showed up. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I always pictured your dad because I I knew your dad. Right. Uh, And, you know, we we certainly crossed paths quite a bit. Uh, I always thought that this was this wine geek who came from (laughs) Chicago. After all, oh. uh, And was making Zinfandel in the basement and all that kind of stuff. Oh, Uh, how funny. No, Tor, I'm sorry you didn't know that story. So he was... 
uh, worked for a corporation. He was in charge of long-range planning, and uh, his job was to read the tea leaves, and he kept coming across, it was an education publishing, but he huh. read everything, and he kept coming across this wine boom, this is the late 60s, that was going to happen. It was going to happen. So he came out here in 71, 72, walked, ran around with Jimmy Warren, the real estate agent, Oh, and yeah, of course. looked at Spotswood was for sale. You could have bought that. He wanted to have Hillside, uh, and he ended up down in this, uh, you know, potentially Hillside area, which is, he, he thought he wanted Hillside grapes. He didn't really know. He uh, read some book. And was going to be an absentee <laughs> owner for 10 years, but within a year and a half, he got fed up with the corporate thing. And, you know, at age 48, and I was in 17 in high school, he, we drove out, drove out and started growing grapes. And, you know, I remember his first wow. wines, he was buying Louis Martini's Zinfandel. We'd taste it and go, oh, that's interesting. And um, just step by step. But, uh, you know, oh my isn't that God. funny? No. Yeah. Well, that was the time. You know, if you go into the 70s, the early 70s, there were less than 50 wineries. Right. It was 40 or 30 something. And you are so right. Spotswood was for sale. Everything was for sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, you 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 were almost making more growing prunes back then than you were growing Cabernet. That's right. I remember there were a lot of prunes when we moved out here. I remember that. Yeah, there were. That was a more profitable crop for uh, all the way up maybe till the 60s. Right, uh, right. And uh, after Prohibition. So we're in a... Wow. We're still in a new business here. So <laughs> Santa Barbara High School. So what happened after high school? Um, went to college. I started at UCSB in Santa Barbara. Uh, then uh, I was holding down a couple. I had this somehow I was not terribly smart in that I was holding down two jobs and I was running track and I just burned out with a full load, too, and took a extra quarter off. To do some backpacking, I worked at a backpack station up in the Sierras, which mm. I loved doing. And it was just very thera- therapeutic. Um, took a quarter off and came back, and in the mailbox was my invitation to get my physical and go to Vietnam. Oh, man. So, yeah. yeah so I, was, I think I was a sophomore, and, and I went, oh, boy, what am I going to do? This is not what I really planned on. You know, my parents were sort of in their own world, and, and I was not really terribly bright in that I did not see myself as a, as a soldier of war. But I ended, up, I ended up in Vietnam for a year, worked the hospitals there, and um, yeah, change, it changes your life in, in a lot of different ways. Thanks for doing that. It wasn't easy. I was, I was right behind you. They, they kind of, right when I got my number, they uh, stopped the draft three months after that, so I missed it. Well, but but uh, I'm kind of glad you did, Doug. Honestly, I'm sure it changed everything for you. Outlook on yeah, life. it changes. It, it it changes your aspect. You 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 are very aware that life is is not forever. It it is it's a it's a fleeting glance, really in time, and you've got a little place in it, and uh, you know use it to the full advantage. I I vowed that I was only going to get involved in in activities and jobs in life in general that that really excited me that um, that allowed me to commit a hundred percent of myself and that's how i first had a jazz club when i came back went back to school 
and start at the same time had a jazz club with a bunch of good friends uh, who introduced me to fine wine that would come up and and uh, we one one good friend had a a couple wine stores actually they were liquor stores with a huge wine selection in the back and he convinced me to come up to Napa and Sonoma to help buy wines for the store and you know visit the uh, uh, the people up here and uh, I would camp in the Botha Napa State Park in my little tent <laughs> and wake wake up in the morning and and uh, knock on doors and, and taste wine with the uh, the vintners how fun uh, just yeah, I just fell in love with this place, uh, and that was it. You know, I I was having a good time with the jazz club, but I knew it was, uh, you know, it was fleeting and wouldn't last forever. And the wine business seemed to have a lot more meat on the bone. So, How cool! So uh, you, yeah. So you were uh, so you finished school, you opened up a jazz club. I love that. Mm. I can well, see. Well, there I, were about there were three of us, and and we we had a real serious jazz club. We had we had all we had a lot of the greats, you know, Stan Getz, uh, oh, Herbie man. Hancock, uh, Chick Corea, who just passed right. a couple of days ago and returned forever. Oscar Peterson. Oscar um, Peterson. Man, we, oh, we yeah. we had the big we had some major talent. That was a lot of fun. We did some rock and roll too. Now that I think of it, we did uh, and comedy. We did Steve Martin when he was blowing up balloons and doing a one man act. I did Lily Tomlin. Uh, oh, Tor, how cool! I never heard about this. This is neat. Yeah, no, it was it was a good part. Of, it, it was sort of a chance for me to get back into life again. And, yeah, uh, it was uh, it was fun, and it was fun to look back. I'll tell you a funny story, Doug. You know Cooper, my son. Yes. So he found in a pile of things uh, my old booking book. Oh. And it had, you know, the people that we were booking. And, it, you know, we were paying for Bonnie Raitt, let's say. Yeah. Uh, I think it was like two or $3,000 a night. Right. Uh, I did Bonnie Raitt and Tom Waits. But anyway, long story short, he took all those people and he, and he, and he made a CD for me oh. of... What they were, what they were recording, what they did back then, and gave it to me as a gift. Oh, how cool! I, it was one of my favorite gifts any of the kids had given me. <laughs> That's so cool. Now, boy, but you know, I gotta tell you, I can picture you, you know, being a co-owner in a jazz club. That that fits for me. I mean, that that works. I get that. So, <laughs> so is, now I did hear a rumor about Elvis and Aretha. Was this a, the same time frame? Well, that was when I came back from Nam. Uh, I had a roommate, and we were processing out, and we were both at the uh, Presidio in San Francisco. Wonderful place to be if you're if you got a couple more months to spend, and you're getting out of the service. And he had a uh, a private protection company that uh, <laughs> he was a co-owner of. So when the major talent was coming in town. You know, he would say, "Tor, do you want to be a you want to be a bodyguard for Elvis?" And I go, <laughs> "I guess I got a good seat if I do that." Yeah, sure. And so, uh, I did a bodyguard gig for Elvis for uh, a couple nights, and uh, Aretha for a couple nights, and uh, uh, you know, I actually felt it was combat duty with Elvis because a lot of the women that were attacking and coming aggressively at the stage were bigger and more aggressive than <laughs> I was. <laughs> Oh, I got a visual. I should have had combat duty for those yeah. some of those nights. Yeah, worn your helmet. Um, 
Oh my God, that's a great story. I love it. Uh, so then, so meanwhile, but you're, you're starting to get into the wine thing. You're up here camping in the park and going to wineries, choosing wines for your your friends back in Santa Barbara. So, what uh, what was the next step? What happened then? Uh, I, my I had my girlfriend was at Stanford, so I kept coming up uh, and doing the wine thing. And uh, one day, uh, I ran Beta Breakers. Uh, had a had a really good uh, gig, felt sort of high and that I could do anything. And I, I turned to my, my girlfriend and I said, you know, I'm going to go up to Napa and I'm going to apply for a couple jobs. So uh, I thought <laughs> wait, Chuck Ortman. What did she say to that? <laughs> she said, great, okay. you know, I could be closer to Stanford. There you and, go, good. Uh, and uh, uh, we came up and she said, oh, look at the Rhine House. That's beautiful. Why don't you work there? So I applied at Behringer. Uh, I applied to be Chuck Ortman's because uh, I really wanted to be a winemaker. Okay. Chuck Ortman's assistant winemaker. Right. And uh, which, as a job that was never according to Chuck, I found out later filled. <laughs> Behringer gave me. A, <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember what's it, Robbins that owned? Spring Mike, Mountain Mike Robbins owns, owns yeah. Spring Mountain, where they used right. to film Falcon Crest, right? Right. Crazy dude. Yes. Absolutely, pardon me, batshit. You know, he, <laughs> he, was, he was a nutcase. But anyway, that's another story. Um, and was Chuck making his wine, too? Was Chuck working for Chuck him? Ortman was his winemaker. That was okay. Chuck's beginning. Okay, that that's was, right. That was Chuck's beginning before we hired him and then at Behringer and then used him for... Uh, a lot of the Chardonnay projects that right. we were doing. But uh, long story short, Behringer gave me a call. It was either the next day or the following day. And I said, oh, what the hell? I'll take whatever job you've got. I just want to come up and, and get involved in the wine business. Huh. And uh, it was a tour guide. I took the job. Uh, I said, can you let me work my schedule around going back to school and taking winemaking classes at Davis, and there was a, a, a two-year course over in Santa Rosa in viticulture. And Berenger said, yeah, go, go for it. We'll, hmm. we'll work your schedule. And upper management said, you know, this is a very aggressive, you know, he's not terribly smart, but maybe, <laughs> maybe, we, maybe we can move him up a little bit. So in, in a few years, I was vice president and um, in charge of all the fun stuff. You're so, you're so bad. Not very smart. <clears throat> Wait a minute. You get hired as a tour guide. You've got a crazy schedule because you're going to classes in Santa Rosa and, and finishing that up. And uh, a tour guide, you know, there's tour guides that get stuck in the tour guide and they stay there for like ever. It's a good gig. It's a fun job. But within, <laughs> two, within two, years, two years, you're vice president of the fun stuff. How, okay, so how did, you, how did that happen in two years and, and what's this, what does fun stuff mean? Well, fun stuff means uh, I could work with winemaking on shaping the private reserve programs, what they should look like, what vineyards we should be getting into. In other words, uh, I was put into a position to be uh, uh, one of the major architects of the upper end, this ultra premium part of the, the wine business for Behringer. So we started with Behringer in that direction and then moved on to, as you know, we bought wineries, we built wineries. Uh, it, was a, it was an interesting period of time because every time 
I felt like, well, this is a dead end now. We would buy another winery or build another winery, and it was a, it was a new challenge to, uh, to say, okay, what, what, what kind of wine should we be making? Uh, how should we be telling that story? Uh, who's our audience? Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And, and as you know, back in the 70s, more the 80s and 90s, uh, we were going through a culinary revolution. Right. And that became, and Behringer would send me to Europe those formative years, those early years, and I was blown away by the hospitality programs. You know, the whole... Uh, concept of food and wine was elevated to something that I was not familiar with uh, in the United States. So Behringer allowed uh, me to to help shape a lot of culinary programming and build the Hudson House to entertain people and um, and to bring out celebrity chefs to work with. Uh, and we started a school for American chefs over that period of time. Um, did uh, a lot of educational programs. It was a really exciting time to be, as you well know, in the Napa Valley. You know, Doug, I'm thinking back on what's something that Andy Beckstoffer told me. Uh, We were driving down to, as you know, Andy's a big 49er fan, or it could have been a Warriors game. But anyway, Andy's driving like a maniac, lead foot, which he is, right. and you know, I'm my my heart's pounding because we're you know we're we're barely missing cars as we're going in and out <laughs> of traffic, and and Andy's t- telling me stories uh, back in the '70s when when he was here. He said, you know, he was part of the ag groups, and he said we would get together and we we would you know talk about the future and what the way that we needed to manage the Napa Valley and the concept was back in the early days do not let the sun set on the tourists in other words get them in get them out and <laughs> don't let the sun that set. was that was that was that whole concept in up until the 70s and uh, into the 70s and it wasn't really till the 80s and 90s that Napa uh, started to become really the destination for wine and food, you could say, in America. Well, you had a front row seat. And I do remember those days because the early days, we didn't do any formal tastings. I don't even think we did a tour. In most wineries, it was just basically right. a bar. You, you belly up to the bar. You come in and drop you know five or ten bucks or nothing. Right. It was free. And basically, it was free. Get, if it was free. And get five or six glasses of wine, and out the door you go. And I can remember, you know, going into that area like at four o'clock in the afternoon and a group would be in there they'd be a little bit little bit intoxicated and they're like <laughs> they're like you know just you know pour me three you know can you hurry up i go yeah it's like what's the rush they go well as soon as we're here we got two more places to stop we gotta get there by five and that'll make 15 for the day and it's like i go 15 oh. 15 wineries they go yeah we're on our we're going for a record today it was insane oh. um and that's, that's what I used to call purple haze. Yeah, that was a f- kind of a scary time, actually. But so yep. you had a front row seat because we were tracking kind of at the same time, but I was buried in the cellar and you were out front d- developing all this new ways of hosting people, which we all do now. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. But you were, I, I didn't realize you'd 
started that whole food program at Behringer because I was thinking, was that right about the same time uh, Robert Mondavi was doing? They had a chef thing it, too. It was, it, it was the same time. Interesting. The way it went is Mondavi started the Great Chefs program, okay. I believe, in the 70s, which was one of the very early, uh, very visible ones. You had... Uh, I believe, which was more of an internal one, uh, the Trefethans, remember there? Right. So it was more for us, and it wasn't really for outsiders. And then Bell and Barney Rhodes were, you know, that was the uh, that was the parlor to be invited to because they were having celebrity chefs and and writers from all over the world coming through their house. And uh, that was an epicenter in Napa Valley, the Bell and Barney Rhodes House. There was one other program. Oh, and actually it started a little later. It was more in the 80s, the cake bread program. That's right. Yeah, they did a great one. So, yeah, uh, and there wasn't much else then other than Sean Don was was developing the the kitchen and brought out Philippe. Mm -hmm. Remember that? I do. That was big news. And I, so I think what yeah. happened, because I've had a few people come on here um, and talk about, quote, the old days, there were no restaurants in the Valley. And so it was None. entertaining at home. So vintner, yeah. vintners would host each other. And um, whoever was doing the cooking, you know, they got together. And you know, that, was, that was kind of a movement just here locally. And so I, th- I think the Mandavi program, your program that you started at Behringer, the cake bread was kind of a transition. Then all of a sudden, those problems didn't continue to flourish because we be, had this wonderful restaurant scene happen, which we you know, right. still do. That's, that's I a think good that's, point. That's the progression, I think. Uh, I, I, I think that there's a lot of honesty to that. Yeah. That was very true. And, and I think we were all embracing these restaurants and, and yes. coming and... and uh, you remember the Trevigne scene at one time? Oh, yeah. For about a decade. Oh. I mean, that was crazy. It's <laughs> a lot of blurry yeah. nights there. Um, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, because we love restaurants, because I don't know about you, but I'd rather go out than cook at home, but that's that's because I'm not the best chef in the world. So well, it's, it's, yeah. more so, it's more social, which... which it, it, it is, and you're supporting your customers, too. You know, the restaurants support you, and you're supporting them. And we've gone back almost... Uh, we've gone back in time up until COVID, uh, where the the wineries started to take over and do all the entertaining, and the and the restaurants started to lose uh, traction. That's so true. So we went we went three sixty on I've, that whole thing. Yeah, I, I, that was kind of going on before the COVID thing. So we'll see how that shakes out. But mm-hmm. uh, one thing I don't want to forget about, I've got to find out when you and your lovely bride Susan got together. What's that story? Well, that, that's a fun one. Uh, Susan was a writer. Uh, she was writing for several magazines. One, the, the article that brought her out to Napa was for a magazine called Working Woman, and it was about women in the wine industry. Um, but uh, she had written a few cookbooks, and she was writing, I think, her third or fourth at that time when she came out. And uh, I was single, so there was always, if there was a, 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 a somebody new in town, uh, <laughs> I, was on, I was on that checklist, you know, that uh, Tor's still single. So uh, somebody introduced it. Actually, it was um, uh, Smith, Stu and oh, Sue Stu Smith. Smith. Yeah. 
uh, introduced uh, us, and uh, I went, "Wow, this is this is really <laughs> cool." So, uh, and and I, I'm going to tell a story on myself that would, could get me into trouble today. Um, Susan came to apply for a job at Behringer, and after we'd met. And, uh, you know, I, I looked at her in the eye and I said, Susan, I, I just don't have a job that, you know, that would, be, would fit for you. But I have an invitation to Bell and Barney's house tomorrow night. I wonder if you'd go with me on a date. <laughs> and uh, she said yes. And uh, I think about a year later we were married. That's great. Did you find her a job? <laughs> uh, she, she, the way she tells the story now is that she worked for me in Behringer for 10 years and never got paid. Okay. So I guess go. so. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. You know what, she, what she did, one of the, uh, which was an extraordinary program. She, uh, one year she said, you know what we should do? Cause I was doing a lot of, uh, culinary programs, celebrating regional cuisines one year, uh, international cuisines another year. And bringing these chefs in from all over the world. But she said, we should, we should take a year and just celebrate the great women chefs in, in the United States. And I went, wow, that's a great idea. So we did that for a full year, uh, brought chefs from all over the state, and then did one huge event that was the who's who of the culinary world at that time. They came out from New York, from... Texas from every place to be part of this one big night at Behringer where uh, everybody from Alice Waters to Julia Child to you know the famous chefs that were running the restaurants all all showed up I had hired Gary Danko uh, to to make sure that all the kitchens which we set up all over the grounds at Behringer were working and that all the uh, the chefs were happy and it was one insane full day and night uh, at Behringer that I'll never forget. That's but that was Susan's concept. And that was her idea. And she's right. She never got paid for that. <laughs> well, you'll have to work on taking care of that. Gary Danko, he, he, was, uh, well, he was at Behringer. Wasn't he your guy for a while? Yeah. I brought Gary out from the East Coast, a mutual, very good friend who worked with us for uh, over a decade, Madeline Kamen. Right. Uh, at Behringer, uh, introduced me to Gary, and uh, I was just literally blown away by the talent. And I shut down a lot of the culinary programs we had, and I said, Gary, if you'd like to, I'd love for you to be our full-time chef. And Gary said yes, and worked for us for about six or seven years at Behringer, before he really needed to get out into the real world and, and have his own restaurant, which he did after that. And Gary and I remain friends today, and uh, I still think he's one of, one of the great talents. Oh, he's a great chef. His restaurant's so wonderful. Um, yeah. That's, so I, I never knew that you were involved in so many different projects that Behringer was doing. I, I mean, but now that what you just explained earlier, so how cool you were on the fr front lines of every new project, every new winery purchase, new vineyard purchase, where's it going to go? You were behind, you know, what's the story going to be? 
How's this, these grapes shaping? You know, what program yeah. is going? What's the story going to be on this one? Where are we going to go with that? How's this, right. How does this wine replay into the whole portfolio price point? That's, that's like, um, I, it's not, you can't pigeonhole it. It's not PR. It's not marketing. It's not brand building. It's just all of those things, I think. Don't you? You know, it's hard to pigeonhole, but boy, it, it was it was challenging, but it was really uh, rewarding in so many ways. I was just, Doug, I was just lucky. Uh, there are so many people coming to Napa or have come to the Napa the last 10 years that are far more talented than I am that uh, could have done what I did. Uh, but I was just, I was right place, right time. Yeah, of course they could have done, but you did it too, man. You were there on the scene. What's your looking? It was so, cool. Yeah, it was great. So look, looking back on it, what's what are your favorite parts about that whole Behringer experience? What do you feel good about? One element was the core management group remained the same for at least twenty of those years. So I worked with you know Ed. First, Myron Nightingale, but Ed Sabragia all those years. You know, Ed was just a great talent. And to watch him develop and, and, and become stronger and stronger as a uh, communicator, but a, certainly as a winemaker. Um, and uh, then, you know, the, the presidents that I worked with, uh, all different but really interesting people. Um, uh, we we went from uh, European ownership to private equity. The Texas Pacific people came in and uh, bought us. Then we went public uh, as a public company. Then we were sold to the uh, Australians all in that period of time. It was a crazy dance. And Behringer opened up their checkbook whenever I felt I needed some education as far as, you know, winemaking or business and uh, was very liberal about uh, giving me whatever educational assistance, going back to school and, uh, at Stanford and, and uh, Caltech to sort of sharpen up in some areas. It was it was a period of time that I don't know exists anymore in corporate or non corporate America. Well, in the, in the early days, they they let they sent you to Europe, so you learned how yeah. that, how they did the hospitality thing, which came back and directly affected how we do things today. But you you, uh, you didn't mention you. I'm I'm jumping at you here. You didn't mention a good buddy of mine, Bob Steinhauer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who ran all the vineyards for Behringer forever. Was, yes, he did. And uh, yeah. I can just see and you. He, I and can he's see, still yeah. working. He's still he working. Is, you and know I can see the two of you in a meeting, which would be hilarious because he's all about growing grapes and, you know, just getting making good making good grapes, man. And, and you're like doing this whole other thing. And, oh, I, I would have loved to hear some of your conversations. Oh, no, Bob, Bob and I <laughs> got along and we still get along famously. I he's he's brilliant but he's he's really a character too as a person well he's a he's a character he's a he's a farmer but my dealings with him he always understood the big picture and the you know yeah you can have the best grapes in the world but if you can't make good wine and you can't market it and promote it and sell it you're not going anywhere i mean he always right. he always got the whole picture which was so neat um, yeah he's a smart guy yeah so 
taking a shift here. You started making. When did you start making your own wine? Back in. Uh, back yeah, in the I 70s? had this. Uh, I had this wonderful retirement party at Behringer, uh, which was great after about 25 years. And uh, Behringer allowed me a year to two years, it might have been a full two years, to mentor on full salary while I started our own little wine company. Oh, wow. And and, uh, even though... Uh, we sold a lot of stock options when we went through that period, which was major for me to be able to afford to start a winery. Without any, we did it without partners, without any kind of strange stuff. Uh, we did it uh, with cash and, and passion. Um, the the concept was really simple, Doug. It, it's what uh, I learned to believe after all those years at Behringer. And, and you've said it already, and I, I know your uh, winery and the way that you look at uh, your philosophy uh, pretty well, I believe, is that it, it really does come down to the vineyard and the grapes. Mm-hmm. So if you focus on that and you get what you consider, you know, the top, the best uh, blocks uh, and vineyards to work with, the rest will fall into place. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do remember people saying, well, Tor, you know, so many people, it'll be easy for you. I never imagined that that would be the case, but it, it did help. I, I sure. will, it, more than I thought it would initially. But the secret sauce, the thing that makes us successful as we are today is that we got into seven blocks in Bextoff or Toklon that we worked with the Phillips family with four blocks in Vine Hill Ranch, that we have a property up on uh, Pritchard Hill that uh, is adjacent to Colgan. And uh, we have that property right below Dollyval and above, above Screaming Eagle on the uh, east side of the trail, right. uh, Tia Roja. And that's, that's our partners, other than uh, Larry Hyde for a little Chardonnay. So... Um, you know, we've got really a pretty cool setup of uh, vineyard partners that uh, uh, I will give, other than having a brilliant winemaker, Jeff Ames, who's been with me since the beginning. Uh, man, it's, it's, it's a fun deck of cards to wake up and play with during the day. And so you, you guys, you and Susan started back, it was what, 20 years ago? Early 2000? 2000 and, 2001. Mm-hmm. And, and you're up to, so how many cases you're making now total? Oh, gosh. We're case stacked at Costco with, uh, <laughs> let's see, no, what is not. it? Yeah, we're about 5,000 cases. We're nice about size. 5,000 cases. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a, Susan and I wear a lot of hats. Uh, we don't have, a huge amount of employees. It, it's a very simple uh, business model without a huge amount of working parts. Keeping it simple, right? And and what, uh, what, you you've, uh, you don't have your own facility, so you, correct? You guys custom crush. I'm assuming we uh, we do with Bart and Daphne Araujo oh, okay. at uh, Wheeler Farms. So Super. we're part of that that group. That's you know I have yet to be in that facility. It looks just really cool driving by it. Well, we'll have to have you over there, Doug. 
Good. I'll, you'll have to. Good. You can show me some of that hospitality you're so good at. I want the There whole, we I go. The I like show. this idea. I like this idea. We'll get you and Annette on over and uh, and uh, do a little. Yeah. To uh, a little fun, fun and games. I'll bring a baguette and some cheese. We'll just picnic. Well, you could come over to our house for a little bit of that hospitality. You don't have to go to uh, to That's Wheeler. True. That's true. Good point. But uh, also, there's some new news. I, I heard something about 400 points. You got something going. You got yeah, we have a 400 <laughs> point wine. How about that? <laughs> you know, I'm a little bit bummed out because I had a 300 pointer, and I was now now you've outdone me. So what, what's going on? <laughs> tell me, tell me about this 400 point wine. Uh, well, uh, four of the major critics gave one of the wines, this, uh, the 2018 vintage, uh, all hundred points, which, wow. I, you know, other than, than Doug getting 300 points, I don't, I don't hear a lot of that going on. So we're kind of excited about that. That's we had cool. 600 point, hundred points this year on the 18. So wow. it was, yeah, wow. it was crazy. Congrats. That's great. Way to it's go, man! Good to be an overnight success, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, twenty years. I'm, yeah, I know that. I know that. I know that story. I've, you know that. You know that story yeah, and that feeling. I've I've seen that movie. So what's uh, what's coming? Well, actually, do me a favor. Run through run through what your lineup is varietally. What do you guys make? We're we're really single vineyard cab um, with the uh, Toklon cab. We co ferment uh, uh, cab franc and cabernet from Toklon for another wine called Pure Magic in certain years. Uh, Vine Hill Ranch, we do uh, Cabernet, and then we co-ferment a little Petit Verdot from Vine Hill with Cabernet in certain years, and that's another Pure Magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a Tia Roja. Uh, we do the Melanson Vineyard. Uh, and then we do a Larry Hyde and uh, uh, some very old cuttings from Larry. It's a little over 30 years old now. Steve Barracini, a good friend of Larry's. We, uh, we work with them on some very small production Chardonnay projects. So that's it. That's, uh, but it's, it's all, it's all primo. It's great. That's the secret sauce. That's the secret sauce. So, Again, thinking about you last night, you've been here a long time. You've seen a lot of changes in this valley. And people, you know, myself included, sometimes tend to, you know, kind of complain about this, complain about that. (sighs) But what are some changes that have happened here in the last 30, 40 years in this valley that you like, that you think is pretty cool? You know, if there's one thing I, I... Come back to when we're challenged, as as we've been, and I think you will agree. In the last couple of years, uh, with the fires and to some of the weather conditions, we've been challenged more than I can ever remember in the 44 years that I've been a vintner. Um, is to see the community still pull together. We've gone from. 40 wineries when or so when you came up in the 70s uh, to over 600 brands right now. Mm-hmm. And when we're threatened and challenged, I still see us pull together as a community, uh, as, as a industry, and work together for solutions. Uh, so that has given me great hope. Uh, I think we have obviously... Uh, we did before COVID uh, traffic situations that we need to, to be uh, we, we need to address better uh, than we have in the past. 
find some solutions there. We have housing situations, if you will, that we need to work on. But I think that we have the people, the smarts, and the strength in numbers as a community to solve the big problems that do face us. So uh, that, you know, I look at the community as being the plus mm-hmm. that I hold above everything else. Well said, and I, I agree 100%. And someone asked me the other day about, uh, <laughs> they were cute. You know, who do you, Doug, who do you consider your competition in the wine world, what other wineries? And I was kind of like, um, I don't look at that like that. They said, well, so what do you mean? I said, these are, all, these are all my fellow vintners. We're all in this together. Whether, it, you know, whether there's fire or there's rain or there's good times or bad times, we're all in this together. And thank goodness plenty of people love to drink good wine, so there's kind of room for all of us out there. So it's not competition. It's, it's friendly competition if it's competition, but it's more uh, let's all join together and you know raise the quality of wines higher, raise the reputation of Napa Valley and yeah. California wine higher. And also take care of our own here in the Valley, which, which we all work hard to do with donations and charities. And, and some of those issues you talked about, we can solve them. And now, you know, it's kind of interesting because those were kind of the hot buttons before COVID. And now I kind of look at those because I hadn't thought about those issues you mentioned um, in a while. And I think now it's like, well, after COVID, okay, hey, let's talk about traffic as opposed to before COVID would be like, well, you know, everybody be getting kind of taking a stand. Now it's more like, yeah, we can fix this. This is nothing. Um, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean, man? Yeah. It's almost a perspective. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we can fix this. So um, that's good. Good, hopeful message, my friend. Tell, tell me where people can find your wines because they've got to try them. What's the easiest way to pour them? Um, we're mostly, because of our size, uh, consumer direct. So uh, if, if people are, are interested, certainly go to the website, tour wines.com uh it's entertaining my son who's as you know cooper's down in hollywood doing uh editing and directing films he did a little film on that which is fun but it's it you know it's got some stories on the website too from the past so if people are interested in in some stories about uh napa in the 70s and 80s there's some on there, but certainly if they're interested, uh, we always, uh, we don't have a club or anything. So if we can uh, hopefully get uh, uh, members on board, uh, we, we, I try to treat them as I'd like to be treated where you don't have to buy something to get something else and we don't send you something without you, uh, you know. We do sell out of wines very quickly uh, yeah. on the website. Uh, as you do your hillside select and and certain wines that you have just the nature of the game but uh, that's the easiest way and hopefully when restaurants come back um, we have a lot of great restaurant partners out there that uh, that have our wines all right good news well my friend it's been wonderful to talk to you it's been too long and uh, also it's always great to find out some really fun new stuff about you I never knew. So <laughs> so thanks for taking the time. Doug, it's always a pleasure, and I can't wait to have people back in the house again. So great to talk. All right, man. Thank, thanks again for the time. Take care. Give Susan a hug. All the best. All right. We'll see you. Thanks. Bye-bye. And there you have it, the Tor Kenwood story. 
It was great catching up with him. Throughout the COVID pandemic, we've all been sticking close to home and it's so good to reconnect. Hope you enjoyed that one. If you get a chance, do yourself a favor and check out Tor Wines. Can't recommend them enough. And speaking of recommendations, if you enjoy what you hear on The Taste, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Doing this helps other people find the podcast. Well, that's it for this episode. We'll see you next time.